Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 158 for August 30th, 2009. Are you ready for Windows 7? It's coming soon. I consider it to be the right operating system, but I still think Microsoft got the wrong price. I'm one of those kooks that thinks anybody who bought a version, any version of Vista, and who lived with it for the past couple of years, should get an automatic, free upgrade to Windows 7 Ultimate. I also think that Microsoft should offer only one version for workstations, and they would call that Ultimate, and one version for servers, and they would call that the server version. Instead, Windows 7 will be available in six editions, although only Home, Premium, Professional, and Ultimate will be available for retail sale in most countries. Regardless of the price, Windows 7 is the right operating system if you're a Windows user. The code has been released to OEMs. Boxes will be on store shelves in a little less than two months. After the boondoggle that was Vista development, which even Microsoft admits was a poorly planned development effort, and after the problems Vista caused for users, Windows 7 at least shows that Microsoft can deliver a good product on time. Actually, you can buy Windows 7 right now but you won't receive it until after October 22nd. If you're willing to settle for the home premium version, you can buy a license for $150 and install it on three machines. Apparently there is some excitement in the marketplace, or possibly just extreme frustration with Vista. According to the UK branch of Amazon.com, pre-sales of Windows 7 exceeded in just eight hours the sales of Vista in its first 17 weeks. You probably know that I have been running the Windows 7 release candidate for the past several months on a notebook computer. I haven't installed it on the desktop system because upgrading from XP to Windows 7 requires formatting the disk drive and reinstalling everything. And the upgrade from the release candidate version to the final full version will also require formatting the drive. For the desktop system, I just couldn't bear to do that twice. There's a lot of eye candy in Windows 7. The Windows 7 user interface is really quite attractive, more so even than Vista. And Vista was a pretty operating system, just useless. But there's ear candy, too. Thirteen additional sound schemes from ones called Afternoon and Calligraphy to Cityscape or Festival, Quirky, Raga, Savannah, and Sonata. Those are some of them. These are subtle, but they're still nice to have. A beta version of Virtual PC is available for Windows 7 Professional and above. Professional and above. You won't find it in the home version. This allows the user to run more than one Windows environment, including Windows XP mode on a single machine. XP mode runs, as you might expect, Windows XP, and it might help with those few applications that cannot be run by Vista today. The good news is that most Windows applications will run properly under Windows 7. And, yes, my test case, WordPerfect 5.1 for DOS, still runs in Windows 7. 
And as important as what's in the new operating system is what you can turn off if you don't want it. If you don't want to use Internet Explorer, Windows Media Player, Windows Media Center, Windows Search, or the Windows Gadget Platform, fine. Turn them off. One of the biggest changes, and one that took a little getting used to, is the absence of the quick start section of the taskbar. That's an area I use a lot. On my XP machine, I have a baker's dozen of icons in the quick start area. With Windows 7, instead of the quick start area, you can pin applications to the taskbar. If you've used Office 2007, you'll recognize this as similar to pinning a document to the file menu. Pin an application to the taskbar and its icon will be there permanently. Mac users will also recognize this behavior from the dock. At first, I thought I wasn't going to like it, but I now find that I miss it when I'm using the desktop computer, which is still running XP. At the right edge of the taskbar, there's a little rectangle. Hover the mouse there and all of the applications turn transparent so you can see the desktop. Click it and all the programs minimize so you have access to the desktop. A second click restores everything just the way it was. During the two years or so that I tried to learn how to live with Vista, the shutdown process would sometimes take 10 to 15 minutes. The Windows 7 shutdown process is even faster than that of Windows XP. Now, it's still not as fast as Linux shutdown, which is about 10 seconds or less, but it is far, far better than anything I ever saw with Vista, even when Vista was working properly. The Windows 7 release candidate is no longer available for download. If you have downloaded it but not yet installed it, you can still obtain a license key, and you can do that right up until the day before Windows 7 actually ships. The release candidate will continue to run until June 1st, 2010. If you haven't installed a licensed version of Windows 7 by then, your computer will stop working. So Windows 7, coming soon. Your next computer, if it's a Windows computer, will certainly have some version of Windows 7. And if you're adventurous enough, you might want to consider upgrading to Windows 7, particularly if you have Vista. Timing, a friend likes to remind me, is everything. For the past six months or more, I've been working on a report about the VLC media player. Product kept changing, though. Finally, it reached version 0.9.9, and I concluded that version 1.0 would be along soon. Well, it's here. VLC joins a bunch of other media players, and they all want to be your best friend. So why should you invite VLC to come inside your computer and play? seems that everybody has a media player. There is Real Media's player, which is free, although there is a paid version. There is Winamp, now owned by AOL, with both paid and free versions. Apple's iTunes is free. Videoland's VLC player, the one I'm going to talk about today, is free. There is a DivX player, both free and paid versions. Some of these players are primarily for audio, some primarily for video. Most, though, try to do everything, and sometimes they like to stab each other in the back. I like Videoland's VLC media player, not because it's free, although that's a welcome feature. Not because it plays any CD, DVD, or media file I throw at it, although that's extraordinarily helpful. One of the primary reasons I like VLC is that it runs on my Windows machines, on my Macs, both Universal and Intel versions are available, and on my Linux machines, available for the most popular distributions. You can even download the source code if you want to compile your own. 
I have been using VLC for several years as it has progressed through its beta cycle. Version 1.0.0 was released recently, followed almost immediately by 1.0.1. If you've ever struggled to play a file that you've downloaded from the hinterlands of the web, you clearly didn't try opening it with Videoland's VLC media player. That's another reason you should consider giving it a try. Videoland is a volunteer project that releases its applications under the GNU Public License. Its primary application is the cross-platform VLC media player. In addition to being small and portable, it handles most audio and video formats from files, physical media, TV capture cards, and a lot of network streaming protocols. VLC can even be used to convert media files, transcode, and act as a streaming server over unicast or multicast and IPv4 or v6. And it doesn't need any external codecs to work. That's saying a lot for a program, much less one that asks only for a donation, if you like it. There are lots of reasons for liking VLC. They start the instant the installation process begins. If VLC notices that a previous version was present, it'll offer to remove it for you. When I installed the latest version, it did notice the previous version had been installed, and it asked me if I wanted to keep my existing preferences information. That way I wouldn't have to set up all the preferences from scratch. So, of course, that's what I did. The removal process, quick, easy, complete. What more could you ask? During the installation process, I noticed that VLC does not install a Firefox plugin by default. This is uncommonly polite operation, very much not like what Microsoft would do. I did select the option because I wanted the plug-in. When VLC plays a file, it can check various Internet sources to see if artwork is available. By default, this is set to manual, and the explanation says that the developers don't like it when an application goes online without saying anything about it. This is another good example of proper programming technique. Ask the user. By default, the Preferences panels ask only for the most essential settings and don't bother the user with a lot of questions that could be answered by audio engineers, video engineers, and network engineers, but probably would puzzle most of the rest of us. However, if you are an audio engineer, a video engineer, or a network engineer, and you want to see all of those settings, VLC will happily show them to you, and you can change them. The entire setup process, including downloading both the Windows and Mac versions of the file, uninstalling the old version, and installing the new one, took less than 10 minutes. Now I was ready to listen to some music, so I opened a folder, and the music started playing. If you want to control the sound of the music, there's a 10-band graphic equalizer that you can set to suit your tastes and your audio system, or you can use one of the many presets. So the audio controls are clear and easy to use in this video application, but what about video? Well, I opened a disc with Season 5 of the BBC's MI5 Spy series, and the disc started to play. VLC includes controls for changing the color balance, gamma, and other video settings, but I have rarely needed to use those. Streaming audio? Well, that's easy. I filled in the information provided by WCBE on its website, and the audio immediately started to play. If you have a mixture of Windows machines, Macs, and Linux computers, you'll probably enjoy VLC because it's one of the few applications available that works the same on all three platforms. I probably won't stop using iTunes or Winamp to listen to audio because both of those programs are better when it comes to organizing the audio files on my computer. But VLC is certainly the easiest way to watch just about any kind of video file that there is. In fact, it does things you might not expect it to be able to do. 
This week I received a video file from a friend of mine. He'd been working at a Habitat for Humanity project. When he did the video, he turned the camera to portrait mode. That's a no-no for video. Video screens are landscape. So my choices for watching the video were to turn the monitor or to tilt my head or, with VLC, to choose a 270-degree rotation. Bingo. Upright video. And I haven't even talked about the additional abilities VLC has to transcode video files so that you can view a program on a portable device. Yes, there are still some legal questions about transcoding material from a DVD to view on a portable device, but one has to think that Congress and the courts will eventually determine that someone who buys a DVD and wants to watch the program while on a business trip really isn't violating the law by copying the program to a portable player. So the bottom line for VLC is five cats. It is one essential program if you watch videos on your computer. Open source, multi-platform, multi-talented. VLC from Videoland is an ideal option for video on the desktop. And if you'd like more information, there is a link to the Videoland website from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. <laughs> A Perl script called FormMail is responsible for sending the output from a lot of web-based forms to website owners. Unfortunately, though, the original FormMail.pl is still in use on many websites. Having been written more than a decade ago by a high school student who was learning Perl at the time, the original FormMail omitted even the most basic security measures. NMS, a British group, reworked the scripts early this decade, but stopped working on the project about 2004. If configured properly, the new version cannot be used to send spam through your website to hundreds or thousands of victims. But the form can be compromised by spam bots that fill out the form and submit it. I countered that weakness by installing what's called a CAPTCHA, completely automated public curing test to tell computers and humans apart. However, Spambot operators have found a way to get around that, too. Now I've shut them down. The Perl script that parses information from the form and sends me an email is supposed to check the refer, that's the location of the form, and run its process only if the refer is my extremely short list of valid domains. It then has permission to send a message to one of just three addresses. For that reason, spammers cannot use this process to send spam to any address other than the three addresses known only to the script. And though the script checks for the refer, this is apparently relatively easy to spoof. As a result, I was receiving 50 to 100 spams per day. It was easy enough to have my email program check for the presence of one of my CAPTCHA validator words, and if the word wasn't present, simply delete the message unread. But still, this was 50 or more messages per day, and given the way spam works, I could foresee a day when the count would hit a 1,000, or 10,000, or 100,000. The time had come to stop it. The CAPTCHA is processed by JavaScript, which is one very large shortcoming. It is visible to anyone who wants to look at it. The Perl script, on the other hand, isn't visible. So that's where I had to solve the problem. Scripts, whether Perl or some other language, when used in this way, are referred to as CGI scripts, CGI's common gateway interface. I knew that the zombie computers filling in the form and submitting it were probably at some location on an infected computer. 
Submitting the form via the website would have failed because the JavaScript wouldn't allow a form with a nonsense validator to pass. So the process was going around the form and directly accessing the CGI script. There were no validator tests in the CGI script, so it seemed that simply adding one there should do it. There is a finite and easily changed list of valid words for the validator, so initially I started by defining all of the current possible words in the CGI script. When the CGI script processes the form, it receives all of the information in the form of a series of name-value pairs, the name of the variable and the value associated with it. So the text arriving from a spammer will contain the appropriate name, validator, but the value associated will be nonsense. I'm certainly not a power programmer when it comes to Perl, but I do know enough to be able to extract the validator value from its name and pop it into a variable. From there, all I had to do was compare the past variable to my list of valid words. If the word isn't present in the list, the submission process just quietly ends. So now, instead of 50 to 100 form-based spams per day, I receive zero. You might think that's the end of the story, and I'd like to think that. But I suspect that spammers will eventually find a way around this, too. When they do, I'm already prepared with some possible modifications. Instead of storing the validator terms in the CGI script, I could store them in a separate file that the CGI script can read. This would make them even more secure and much easier to change. I could encrypt the validation terms and decrypt them on the fly using a public-private key scheme. That would make it impossible for spammers to read them and get around the CGI validation. In any event, if you'd like to know more about how this works, drop me a line or use the contact form on the website. I'll let you know. In short circuits this week, a couple of reports from correspondents. I received some messages from readers who wanted to let me know about questionable business practices. Garth Edwards told me about a practice that I thought had all but disappeared, referring to what he called a somewhat underhanded approach by Symantec Norton Antivirus. Edwards notes that Symantec will automatically renew antivirus registrations year after year unless the customer specifically cancels it. This occurs whether one has been using Norton Antivirus or not. In other words, it's the old negative option that is still in use by some book clubs, although many have changed to a model by which they don't send you anything or bill for anything unless you request it. I'm sure that Symantec covers this process in the fine print of its licensing agreement, and I'm sure that it's completely legal. Still, it would be far more fair to the consumer to ask the customer for renewal and not just assume that renewal is wanted. My internet service provider, Bluehost, has my credit card number on file. The renewal is automatic every year, but Bluehost does start warning me about the charge several weeks in advance. If for some reason I decide I want to move to another host, it's easy enough to cancel the charge before they ever place it. The key here, it seems to me, is making sure that your customers simply know what to expect. And Rick Bagby reminded me of my report concerning Microsoft's unwanted and unneeded net framework plug-in for Firefox. Microsoft installed the plug-in automatically without asking for permission and did so in a way that made removing it difficult. It required a trip to the registry editor. Rick was surprised to find that the plug-in was back. Rick said, recently it happened again. Even though I have my machine set so that I have to check for the updates and then select ones that I want, I found that my machine was updating anyway. So I checked Firefox, and the rogue add-on was there again. I checked my computer, too, and sure enough, there it was. 
This time, though, Microsoft at least got the installation process right. Instead of installing for all users this time, Microsoft installs just for the current user. So if you want to remove the Net Framework component from Firefox, you can do so in the normal way. Some people just can't bring themselves to trust Microsoft. And Microsoft seems to wonder why. Unlike Microsoft, Apple is pricing the latest version of its operating system very competitively. But that doesn't stop some people from responding to offers for a free stolen version of the operating system. You might wonder what you get instead. What you get is a Trojan that changes your DNS server to something that will send your computer to very bad places. Trend Micro says that several rogue sites are offering free copies of Snow Leopard. But if you're stupid enough to bite, you'll find your machine is infected with a Trojan. And that's just the beginning. The Trojan starts by changing your computer's DNS configuration to include new servers that will take your browser to phishing sites. Supposedly, pirated versions of Microsoft's still-unreleased Windows 7 operating system have also been used to trick thieves into installing malware on their computers. And yes, I did refer to these so-called victims as thieves. If you're honest, you won't get caught in this trap. But nearly 30,000 people have downloaded the infected version of Windows 7. The Snow Leopard Trojan is part of an OS X mountable disk image, Load it, and the script will create a cron job that will run the malware on your Mac every five minutes. If you want Snow Leopard on your Mac, your best choice would be to obtain it from Apple's website. When several state governors received shipments of unordered laptops, the assumption was that they weren't being sent by anonymous benefactors hoping to improve governance. The FBI is investigating these mysterious shipments, West Virginia, Wyoming, and Vermont officials acknowledge the shipments. Clearly, the orders are fraudulent, but what's behind them? The source of the machines is being investigated on the suspicion that they might be used to introduce malware into state networks. It's not uncommon for thieves to lose CDs or USB drives outside business and government offices. Employees find these lost devices, take them back inside, and put them in their computers. Instant malware infection. With netbook computers costing just a few hundred dollars, crooks could stage a major break-in by buying just a few thousand dollars worth of netbooks and distributing them to the right people. How many other state or federal officials have received these computers? How many have reported them? Are there any currently in use somewhere? And are the machines being used as vectors for malware? Or are they just somebody's idea of a weird practical joke? All those questions still unanswered. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.